Why don't you go ahead and grab your Bibles and turn to Psalm 73. Psalm 73 is we're going to be this morning. If you don't have a Bible on you this morning, we have people coming up right now who have Bibles in their hands. We'd love to get a Bible into your hands. So if you forgot a Bible this morning or didn't bring one or don't have one, throw your hand up and grab one of these. If you don't own a Bible, take this home. This Bible home is our gift to you. Grab a copy of God's Word, uh, the one you brought with you, the one you grabbed there, your phone, wherever you've got it, and turn to Psalm 73. Psalm 73 is we're going to be this morning as we continue in this series in the Psalms. If you have, a, if you have kids or, or you, you remember back to when your kids were little, I, there's an experience I remember as a dad that I absolutely hated doing, and it was kind of a tough part of being a parent, and it's when you take your little child, your little baby, and you bring them to the doctor for their shots. Remember doing that? You ever have to do that, right? And, and you, you bring them in, you sit down, and the doctor comes with the, with the needle ready to, to hit them in the arm with those shots, and, and, and while you're doing it, do you ever, do you, I kind of thought this, I could just picture my, one of my daughters looking up at me and thinking, why are you doing this? You're, you're even holding me down to let this stranger hurt me. You should be kicking him in the throat or something. Like, be a dad. Protect me. Why is this going, right, right? And, and how often in, in that moment, man, I think it's such a good picture of, of where we often find ourselves with God. And, and we see what's going on around us and we, and we start, to, start to, to doubt the promises that we hear about who God is, all these promises of scripture, and they don't line up with the situation we have ourselves in. And we read God is good and God loves us and God protects us and God is just and God is in control. And then we look at our life, what's going on in our life, or, or we can look around at the world going on around us, even if our life's going great and we see what's happening, we wonder, man, is this really true? Is what we've been told is what we read in scripture. Is this actually the truth? And, and I got to tell you this, doubt is a very common experience. Doubt affects us all. I mean, people ask me as a pastor, they, they'll, they'll ask me, do you ever doubt? And, and I'll look them right in the eyes and I'll say, never, only sinners doubt. <laughs> if you're taking notes, here's our first point right away. It's this, doubt can hit anyone. Doubt can hit anyone. I mean, doubt hits us all where we find ourselves in that place and maybe you've been there, maybe you've asked these questions. God, where are you? God, why aren't you doing something about this? God, God, wh why am I battling like this? Where are you in this? Why haven't I seen healing? Why am I out of work? Why is life so difficult? Why is my marriage so hard? Why are my kids rebelling? Why are my parents the way they are? And we start to ask these questions or, or you look around at the world, God, what are you doing? I mean, people who don't care at all about you, God, they're doing great, while those who have given their lives to you, they're the ones suffering. You look in Scripture, you see even those who wrote Scripture under the influence of the Holy Spirit, even they had doubts, and a lot of them had doubts. John the Baptist, John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, the, the prophet who came before him, it's years into Jesus' ministry, and John the Baptist comes to him, and he says, you know what, I'm not so sure you're the Messiah. Thomas, one of Jesus' disciples, one of his closest friends, he gets the nickname now, Doubting Thomas. Why? Because he couldn't believe that Jesus had risen from the dead. The guy had doubts. 
But he wasn't the only one. In Matthew 28, we read, after Jesus has risen from the dead, he's been with his disciples for a time. He's given them the instructions of the mission ahead. He's told them the Holy Spirit is coming and he's ascending into heaven. And as he's ascending into heaven, so picture it, he's floating into heaven. Matthew writes in Matthew 28 that some of us doubted. That in that moment, and then we come to Psalm 73, If you have your Bibles open, it says right away, it says, a psalm of Asaph. Who's this Asaph guy? Asaph was a priest in the temple, but he was also in charge of the music. So so when you think Asaph, think he's the Eric Hellowell of Israel, all right? He's the worship pastor of Israel right now. Listen to what he says. Verse one says, truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. What is he saying? When he says my feet almost stumbled, he's given this picture of, I started to doubt, and I don't know if I was gonna hold on much longer. My feet almost stumbled. I'm I'm the worship pastor, and I'm struggling with who God is. My, My faith is shaken. Now, I love how honest scripture is. It's why I love the Psalms. This guy, this Asaph, he's not coming around to church. He's not walking around just faking it as he goes. He's, he's a pastor and he's saying so clearly, man, I struggle with my faith. Now, why is he struggling? What's the struggle that caused him to almost stumble, to almost slip? Look at verse three. It says, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Now, when he says wicked here, what's he mean? He means people who don't care about God. People who don't live their lives for God. And Asaph's saying, well, wait a minute. Here are these people who who don't care at all about God, and yet their lives seem to be great. He goes on, verse four. For they have no pangs until death, and their bodies are fat and sleek. And what's that mean to say your body's fat and sleek? Don't say this as a compliment to anybody today, all right? You look so very fat and sleek. Life must be good for you. But in, in this context, when you, when you say that somebody would, would, be, would be a little chubby, it's because they're doing good, because life is good for them. They don't have to worry about food. And he's saying, I mean, here are these people, they're super healthy. They don't even have pangs until death. Life goes great for them all along. They're the beautiful ones. They've got all the followers on Instagram. Look at verse five, it goes on. They're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. They don't have troubles. They got, they got house cleaners. Their cars all work. They got great jobs. Verse six, he says, therefore pride is their necklace. What's he saying there? He's saying they're even standing up saying, look at what we've done. They, they don't care at all about, about God. They, they take all credit for their success. It goes on. It says violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with folly. They're living out the good life on the backs of others. People are oppressed. These guys gain more. Goes on, verse eight, they scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten opposition. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. So he's saying, they got no need for God at all. They even mock the very idea of God. They're the ones doing great, looking down on these other ones, following God, going, look at you, following the spaghetti monster in the sky. How's it going for you? Look at me. Life is good. 
goes on, verse 10, therefore his people, talking about God's people, turn their back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the most high? Even other followers of God, even Christians are looking in going, man, maybe they're right. I mean, they, they keep mocking God and life gets better for them. Maybe God doesn't know. You see where Asaph's doubt really comes in hard, though. Look at verse 13. After seeing all of that, look at what he says, though. He says, all in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long, I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. Do you hear what Asaph's saying there? It's not so much that everybody else is doing great. It's just that he's looking at his own life going, what a waste What's the point of following God? I've done all these things. I've given my life to him. And all these people who don't even care about him are living it up with no worries, no suffering. Can you hear me saying that? I, I give money faithfully to ministry and, and here I am struggling financially. I lean into God in obedience and obedience and, and lean into him for my hope and my marriage is hurting. I, I serve faithfully and I struggle with huge sin or, or anxiety or pain or worry or addiction. I, I poured out the gospel into my kids and my kids are the ones who've rebelled. What's he saying? He, he's actually saying, I regret following God. It's all for nothing. It's, it's all in vain. You know, doubt is everywhere. And it happens when, when the superficialities of our faith meet the realities of our world. Do you catch that? When, when the superficialities of our faith, when we, when we say, I think this is what I believe, and then we're hit with the realities of the world. And now all of a sudden, those things that we kind of held on to, but not tightly to, man, they don't seem so real anymore. And C.S. Lewis described it this way. He said, it's, it's like a, a woman who's going out on a date with this guy. And all their other single friends are saying to her, hey, hey, be careful. This guy's a dog, man. He's dirt. He's not a good guy. Don't go out with him. He'll woo you. He'll pretend that you're, uh, that you're amazing, that he loves you, but he's only taking you to very bad places. He's gonna use you and throw you away. And she hears her friends say that, and, and her friends are good friends. They usually tell the truth, and yet she goes out on a date with this guy. While she's dating this guy, he seems so nice, so funny, so kind, He's like the dream guy. And so what does she do? She starts to doubt her friends, her friends who she's never had reason to believe that they would steer her wrong at any other time. No reason to not believe them, but the problem is her friends were just words now and her life experience, this dude, he's now 3D surround sound, like he's right there. And so, so doubt isn't so much about facts coming together and clashing. Well, here's one truth against another truth. What doubt really is, it's our heart experiencing something that seems to contradict what we know to be true. And, and what you're experiencing makes what, man, I, I used to believe this. I used to think this was true. This is what I think is true. But what I'm seeing around me makes me wonder if it's really true. That's what doubt is. And what happens is our shallow faith is tested deeply. When those experiences hit us, our faith is tested. And, and, and listen, because you can easily walk around spouting out verses saying, well, no, no, God is good to those who follow him and, and God works out everything for good to, to those who love him for, for their good, for his glory. And 
There's always a purpose in suffering, and then suffering hits you. And now those verses don't seem so easy to spout off. And this new reality can begin to chip away at your faith. And and here's what it's going to do. It's either going to deepen your faith or it's going to shake your faith. Because I believe God has a way of, of bringing those he loves into these kind of places, into these places where he uses doubt to drive our faith deeper into him, to get past these edges of, of superficial faith right to deep faith in who he is and what his promises are. So yeah, doubt's gonna hit us all. So here's a second point. What, what do I do with this doubt? What do I do that? What do I do when doubt hits me? What do I do when it comes at me? What, what are ways that I can, I can walk in through this doubt so my faith is deep? And here's the first thing we need to do. What do I do with this doubt? We see it here in the text here. Wrestle with the doubt. Wrestle with the doubt. Verse 16, he says, but when I thought how to understand this, it seemed a wearisome task. There's, there's a person who's not just blowing off the doubt, not just entering into the doubt, but here's Asaph wrestling with it. He said, it's wearisome to me. It's, it's hard for me. It's difficult to me. It's a wrestling for me. He looks around and he can't understand how God is at work and it's not easy. If you're here last Sunday as we began this series, we talked about pain and suffering and tears and emotions. And we talked about how the really culture puts two kind of ways we can deal with these things at us. We can either hide it and avoid it and not deal with it and say, let's put all the pain away and we're not gonna talk about it and everyone just smile and be happy. Or or we can fully embrace our emotions and let them lead us and guide us. Listen, doubt's the same. We get told, especially in, in a lot of churches, what are you told? Hey, hey, we can't doubt. So we have these real doubts, and yet, we're, we're, what do I do with these things? And we're shamed into saying, well, well, don't express them. So we do our best, and we, we fake it, we hide it, we avoid it. You just gotta believe. Or, or the other option we think is, well, I'm just going to grab a hold of this doubt and enter right into it and allow the full weight of the doubt to, to wash over me. And, and the psalmist here gives us another way. He says there's an alternative here. And the psalmist is saying, hey, don't miss the opportunity that doubts bring to us to, to drive our faith deeper. Where we can ask the questions, who is God Really? Is he worthy of, of giving my life to him? And, and then allow those doubts, not to, not to hide them, not to fully embrace them and say, I guess this is it, but allow them to drive you into God's word, allow you, them to drive you into God's presence. So what do we do with our doubt? We do the same thing we do with our pain. We pray our doubts to God. That's what the psalmist is doing here. I think so often we, we see doubt as an end to faith. He said, well, well, here's the thing. I have a choice. I either walk in faith or I embrace this rational truth. And that's what doubt kind of appears to us. Well, this is real truth. So, so I'm going I'm to rest in this because this is easier. Faith is a leap out into nothing. Man, I don't want to do that leap out into nothing. I want to stay where I'm secure. Here's the thing. It, 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 it's not true that that's what doubt is. To, to rest in doubt is not a place to rest. You, you have an opportunity to go one way or the other, but it's a choice either way. I used to lead uh, canoe trips and, and 
had a bunch of students with me. We were on the Buffalo National River in Arkansas. And, and in Arkansas, I'm a guy, I'm, I'll just admit it right now, I'm kind of a wimp this way. I hate snakes. They just freak me out. I just don't like them. But then you take me and put me into a place in the world where snakes aren't just creepy and weird, but they can kill you, all right? Now I hate them even more. But there was, we had this student, his name was John. And Johnny, he super hated snakes, like even more than me. He just couldn't stand them. And, and we were cliff jumping one day, and he also hated heights, all right? So here's a guy, everyone encouraged him, Johnny, you can jump from this cliff. It's gonna be great. The water's deep. It's so fun. So Johnny climbs out onto this cliff face, all right? He's, he's on the edge here. And, and the thing with this cliff is it was a, a ledge sticking out on a 300-foot cliff. So you couldn't go up any higher. He was at the right spot to jump. He, he, was, he was ready to jump, but he's scared. He goes, I'm not going. And then in that moment, coming out of the rocks where he was, was a snake. Okay, and it wasn't just a snake. It was, it was a cottonmouth or a water moccasin. Here's the thing about them. They're not just snakes. They're the jerks of the snake world, all right? Like, they're just angry snakes. They're like, they just hate everyone. They chase you. They're just mad at the world. So it starts poking its head or the rock. It's, it's not really doing it. It's just sort of looking out. And now Johnny's got a choice. <laughs> do I leap out into the unknown or do I go back because I'm scared of heights? But there's that snake there. And, and because we had such encouraging students, one of the students actually goes to our church, Chris Clark. I'm going to out him. He was uh, on the edge encouraging Johnny by smashing the rock to scare the snake out more. Right? <laughs> and just like, stop, stop, stop. He had to make a choice, right? He made the right choice, by the way. He leapt out into the unknown. So, so when doubts come, we have this idea that, well, if I leap out into faith, that's the dangerous place to go. No, I'm telling you, you're going to make a choice either way. But it's not like you can just rest and go, well, doubt's the safe place to be. I'm not going to follow the, this faith thing anymore. You're making a leap either way. Both require a step. We need to wrestle with our doubts. And I love how in the first chapter of John, Philip meets Jesus, completely, radically transformed by Jesus. So he goes to Nathaniel. He goes, Nathaniel, I've met the Messiah. It's Jesus of Nazareth. And Nathaniel says this, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Now, apart from being a pretty solid dig on the town of Nazareth, what he was actually saying is this. He's saying, wait a minute, wait a minute. The Messiah is supposed to come from Bethlehem. So, so this guy couldn't be the Messiah. Now, Philip in that moment doesn't turn to Nathaniel and say, hey, man, stop doubting. If, if, if you don't believe, you can't receive Jesus. So, so you got to know, what does he say? He, he turns to, to Nathaniel. He says, Nathaniel, come and see. Come and see. He, he doesn't tell him to stop doubting. He, he doesn't embrace it and go, I guess you're right. Wow, let's forget this Jesus guy. He goes, come and see. What he's saying is, hey, let's dig deeper. Let's meet Jesus. Let's figure this out. Let's wrestle through that doubt you have. Let's don't, don't just submit to it. Don't just blow it off. Asaph begins to wrestle with this doubt he has. And what's he find out about his doubt? Look at verse three. We have the benefit of being the other side of his wrestle. So we kind of see him reveal, even as he struggles, what his doubt really was. Verse three, what's it say? I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. I mean, he realized that his doubt wasn't this pure doubt. It wasn't like he's looking around with this purity and justice saying, the world's not a just place. He realized underneath that doubt was his own envy. 
And he's not just embracing that doubt, he's wrestling with it. He's saying, where does this doubt come from? What's underneath my doubt? And he says, I finally started to realize that that under my doubt was this question, is God actually worth it? Underneath my doubt was this question of, if I were God, I would do things much differently. And he wrestles this out with God. He, He prays his doubts to God. In fact, look at verse 15, it says this. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. He's saying, if I, if I would just went horizontally with this thing, if I had just gone to everyone in every place and just talked to everyone else about this struggle, if I just got up in the worship service and grabbed my guitar before I let it and said, hey, just before I go, guys, before I lead you in worship, I just want to let you know that I don't think any of this is even worth it. It's just a waste. No, no, he's not taking his doubt to anyone who would listen. He takes it to the Lord and God then in his grace begins to dig underneath Asaph's doubt. He begins to to, to peel away the struggle. He begins to, to peel back the anxiety, the fear, the worry, the pain. And Asaph says, man, if if I had taken this horizontally to everyone else, I would have wrecked my people. If I had gone to other people, hoping beyond hope that they'll rescue me from this doubt, you need to help me, you need to save me, he would have put a weight on them they were never meant to bear. Instead, what he's saying is, I wanna take this to the Lord. He's saying, if if I took this outside, what he was saying in this doubt, what he was really saying is this, that I want God's gifts more than I want God. God, you owe me. I gave you all this. I'm following you. And what he's saying is, man, if I live this thing out right to the end, what I would say to those around me looking in, what I would say is, man, if you follow God, you get an easy life. He wrestled with the Lord. The Lord begins to reveal his heart. And what does this do for him? How does it change him? Well, we wrestle with our doubt. But here's the second thing we do with our doubt. We see the gospel. We, we, we see the gospel. He said he was so wearied by this, it was so hard until verse 17. Then he says, until, until I went into the sanctuary of God. He enters the temple and what happens? I mean, he was doubting because he looked around and he saw all these people who didn't give a rip about God and they were doing great and, and it challenged his superficial faith. In fact, look what it says, though. It says, until I went to the sanctuary, then I discerned their end. He goes in to see God. He he says, I need to go deeper than this. I need you to dig deep under my doubt. And he sees some things that give him an eternal perspective. He says, I went to the sanctuary and I discerned their end. Verse 18 goes on. It says, truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin how they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by tears, like a dream when one awakes. Oh Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. What's he saying? He's saying, I thought my feet were on shaky ground, but I compared what I was standing on, and I'm standing on the truth of God, on the gospel that saves, and I look over there, wait a minute, their feet aren't actually on solid ground. And now from an eternal perspective, he's like, wait a minute, wait a minute. My suffering is actually gonna be pretty short. Their happiness seems so meaningless to him now. He says they're, they're living like they're in a dream. 
I mean, dreams can seem real, right? I'm a vivid dreamer, all right? I have what I've labeled this. I don't know if it's a correct label, but I have what I call wake mares, right? That's where I'm kind of awake and they're still happening, all right? So, so Libby will wake up in the middle of the night and I'll be like, what's that guy doing in our room, right? And I'm up in bed ready to, to well, not fight. I'm usually ready to run and hide, um, and so she'll wake up to me yelling about stuff like trees growing through the roof or, or like, right, I'm, a, I'm a dream to be married to, by the way, all right? <laughs> they seem so real in the moment, all right? It's like I'm, I'm like half asleep, half awake. I mean, it seems vivid and real until Libby in her gentleness says, you're dreaming, you idiot, right? And she wakes me up. And then when I come to... It takes a few moments, right? It takes a few moments. When you come out of one of those vivid dreams, maybe you have those, right? And it takes a bit to go, man, wait a minute, wait a minute. Oh yeah, that's not real. I mean, that's what the world is like. Listen, for those outside of God, for those who haven't put their faith and their hope and their trust in Christ, death is gonna be the sudden awakening out of their illusion of power and success and they wake up out of that dream and the psalmist says, it's over. I've heard it said this way, for those who don't know Christ, the world is as close to heaven as they're gonna get. For those who know Christ, the world is as close to hell as they're gonna get. So, so all the suffering you're experiencing, you recognize, man, this is as close to, to the suffering that I'll ever get to because I know what's waiting for me. His perspective changes. Why? Because he sees eternity. Because he sees what's coming. Do you guys remember it was a while ago, the uh, Miss Universe competition where Steve Harvey crowned the wrong girl? Do you guys remember that? Right? You could Google it, YouTube, look it up on YouTube. It's, it's a, a train wreck to watch. It's, it's like heartbreaking to watch it. I've seen it hundreds of times. All right? You just can't turn away from it. So here's what happens. Right? Steve Harvey says, and you're the Miss Universe, and he puts the crown on her head, right? And, and as you're watching it, you know what's coming, that he made a mistake, that the girl beside her is actually Miss Universe. He puts her crown on her, and you see her face, just light up with, I mean, this, her whole life has been leading to this, and she has the flowers, and she's just, and you're watching, going, oh, don't be so happy, right? Because you know what's coming. We want to scream at her, it's not real. Don't enjoy this. It's all about to be taken away from you. So let me ask you this. Which would you rather be? The first Miss Universe or the second? Since scripture calls out to us, wait for the crown that can never be taken away. That the joy is so fleeting when we put our hope in today, in our world today. Suffering changes when we see eternity. Suffering changes completely. Not only do we see the joy of the world, man, that doesn't seem so great anymore because I, I know what I have coming. Our suffering starts to seem less. And it's a bit like this. It's, it's like hearing that you got a, a huge inheritance and you're, you're on your way to the lawyer's office for this $10 million inheritance and your car breaks down on the way. And you have to get out of your car and walk the, the, the last 5K. You got to walk to the lawyer's place. Would that be a hard 5K to walk? Would you be complaining about my stupid car? This is ridiculous. No, that would be the happiest 5K walk you've ever had, right? Why? Because the suffering of a car breaking down and the walk you have to make can't compare to what you're coming up to. It's like Paul says in Romans 8.18, he says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. 
I mean, I've heard it said this way, when we get to heaven, it's not that we're gonna look back and be able to go, oh, now I see, now I see what God was doing. Now I understand all the reasons for the difficulty, for the suffering, for the pain. I get it now. Instead, what we say, we'll say, what bad things? I mean, in a moment, we'll be so consumed with, with God's finished work. We won't even think about what we've been through. So as we worship today, as we, as we see the gospel again today, what we can even look at the painful things in life and see how they drive us deeper into him. Listen, if you don't know Jesus this morning, the dream's gonna be over soon. Are you prepared today to wake up to reality that, that outside of, of giving your life to Christ, outside of saying, I can't do this on my own anymore, it's not about me, but, but I'm destined to being separated from God for eternity in hell if I don't turn and say, Lord, I need you. I'm a broken sinner in need of saving. That, that outside of that, listen, the dream is gonna end soon. As a Christ follower, if, if you're here this morning, you've given your heart to Christ, I mean, you may not see it now, but, but the pain is just temporary. You're seconds away from saying, what pain? You see, for Asaph, it, it was so oppressive to him until what? Until he entered into the sanctuary of God. So, so for us today, I mean, what do you see? What are you looking for? Where are your eyes today? When like Asaph, when you come into God's presence, do you begin to see that Jesus is enough? Look at verse 21, he goes on. He says, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. Nevertheless, I'm continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel and afterward you receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? There's nothing on earth I desire beside you. Do you see the gospel laid out there? He goes into the temple and what's he see? He says, I was like a beast. I was only thinking about myself. I was, I was all thinking about my pain and my struggle and looking for my comfort. I, I was way more interested in what God could give me than interested in God himself. I'm using God all the time, he's saying. And what was God's response to that? What does God do in the midst of his envy and his pride, his anger, his doubt? God holds on to him. God guides him. God loves him. And I love that idea that it says, God grabs a hold of my hand. I mean, it may sound cheesy, but it's right out of scripture. I mean, I just picture a little kid reaching up and grabbing a dad's hand. I love that as a dad. My kids are getting older now. They don't do it as much anymore. Man, it's so cool. And they just grab, why are they grabbing your hand? They're grabbing your hand as a dad because they're like, I love you. I trust you. I'm safe with you. God reaches out and grabs our hand while we're a beast, while we're full of envy and doubt. And he guides us. I love that. In, in the midst of our doubt, we have a place we can go. We can pray our doubts to God and God says he'll lead us and guide us. In the midst of our doubt, we, we can reach out to so many other places, so many other things, and, and hoping this is gonna help, this is gonna heal, this is gonna save, and, and all the while, God says, I'm reaching out to you, I'm holding you. Our hope is reaching out to that hand. It's getting to the place where we say, God, I have nothing else in heaven, I want you. I want you above anything else. I mean, do you believe that this morning? In the midst of pain, 
where doubts might be running around in your heart and your head, the place where peace is found. As we say, Lord, the riches I want are you. The acceptance I want is you. The hope I have is you. In verse 26, he says, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Right in that verse, it's this secret to Christian joy. This, that, that Jesus is always with us, that, that he's better than anything else we can have in life. He's better than anything death could take away from us. There's the secret to our joy. It's, it's what Johnny Erickson, uh, Erickson Tata would say. She, she's the woman who's been, been um, paralyzed since she was a teenager. She dove into shallow water, been in a wheelchair for the rest of her life for, for the longest time. And she said this, Johnny said this. She said, I'm okay with losing my hands and my feet for the last 60 years. She says this, I wouldn't change a thing because it brought me nearer to God. What's she saying? She's saying, I don't have anything else in heaven or earth that I want more than God. God's my strength. He's the strength of my heart and my portion forever. What are you saying right now in the, in the midst of your doubts, in the midst of your pain, in the midst of your fear? Can, can you see what Asaph saw? He, he enters the temple. He sees the gospel on display. He sees sacrifices being made on his behalf. And, and so now what do we see? We see the cross and we see that our identity is changed. Our eternity is changed. I mean, you can, can you say this morning when you see the love of Christ displayed for you, can you say, Jesus, you're better to me than anything I could ever get from you. You're better to me than anything this world could ever offer or death could ever take away. Because listen, at some point, God will put you in a place where your faith is gonna be put to that test. Where he's gonna, he's gonna put you on your back where you're gonna have to ask, is God good? Do I really trust God? Is his presence, is his promise, are, are those good enough for me? Can I, can I trust him to guide me and lead me and care for me like he promises? I, th I think of a guy like George Mueller, George Mueller was like the, the Wayne Gretzky of prayer, all right? Or the LeBron James or the Chuck Norris, whatever he fits your thing. Like he was just the, the guy that this guy could pray, man. He would pray and things would happen. He opens up orphanages in England and, and never asks for money once. He just prays. And they were never without. They would have no food. They would pray. Food would just show up at the door. He had lists. He would keep a journal, a prayer journal, just lists of answered prayers. His wife then became horribly sick. She had rheumatic fever, and, and he prayed earnestly for healing. This guy who every time he prayed, God answered his prayers. He's praying for God to heal, but listen, God didn't heal his wife. She died. But the last verse he read to her on her deathbed, the verse that he preached her funeral from, was Psalm 8411, where it says this, no good thing will he withhold from those whose walk is blameless. He trusted God to the point where he said, God, God, you're a good father. You give only good gifts. So if, if healing was a good gift, you would have given me healing here. Can you trust God that way? Asaph saw the gospel. I was a beast and God still loved me. He didn't leave me. He held me even when I didn't trust him. He loved me when I didn't love him. He didn't leave me. 
He, he kept holding on to my right hand even when I nailed his hand to the cross. He came alongside, loved me. He would rather go to the cross and be humiliated and tortured than lose me. That's the love of God through Christ for you. That's what makes him more desirable than anything on earth. Like, where can you find a love like that? It's why Asaph says, who have I in heaven but you? There's nothing on earth I desire more than you. You're better than anything that life could give me, anything death could take away from me. The key to all of this is this. Here's the key to the whole message. Two things that can destroy doubt. First is this, it's faith. Faith in knowing how unbelievably, extravagantly God loves you. Do you have faith in that? God, you love me. I've seen it displayed on the cross. The second thing is humility. It's humility to know how undeserving you were of that love. So we rest, we rest in humility to say, God, you know. God, I'm no longer gonna say I know better than you. He says, who have I in heaven but you? Really saying, if, if not Jesus, then who? Where else am I gonna turn? If not Jesus, where else will I go? Like Peter, do you remember the story in the gospels? Jesus lays out the call to follow him and he's like, man, if you're gonna follow me, you're gonna take up your cross. You will suffer if you're gonna follow me. And everybody leaves, the crowd disperses. And Jesus turns to his disciples and he goes, what about you guys? Where are you gonna go? And Peter says the, the coolest thing ever. He says, where else are we gonna go? You have the words of life. Peter's basically saying this. Yeah, I don't like what you just said. I don't always like where you lead us. I don't always like how, how the places you take me. But man, you walk on water. You, you bring death, dead people to life. I'm sticking with you. Where you go, I'm gonna go because where else am I going to go? As the worship team comes up, as we end off this morning, listen, walking with God can be difficult. Trusting God in the midst of the unknown can be very hard. Be believing in Jesus doesn't mean your doubts just disappear. It doesn't mean all your questions are answered. But what it does mean as you press into your doubts, as you look beneath the doubts, as your faith grows deeper, even in the midst of the doubts, that you see that Jesus is worth it. That there are no other alternatives. How do we have faith in the midst of our doubt? Because we recognize that there's one person who experienced doubt greater than anybody else in all of history. There was a person who was completely faithful to God and yet God hid his face from him. That when Jesus was on the cross, he would have experienced doubt in a, in a way that none of us have experienced because on the cross, God let go of Jesus' hand. God did let him slip. God gave him what doubters deserve so that we as doubters can know in spite of all our doubts that God's not letting go of our hand. You have to know that. You have to know that grace that, that Jesus substituted himself and took all on him, all the things we deserved to give us the righteousness that we didn't deserve. So when Satan whispers to you, God's holding back. God doesn't love you. Look around you. 
Instead of looking around, that we would come to that place where we'd look up, we would see God, that we would look to the cross and we would see his grace and his love poured out on us. That in the midst of our doubt, that when we don't deserve it, God pours out extravagant love on us. A love that will change our eternity and a view of that eternity can change our today. Would you stand with me as I pray? Heavenly Father, I pray that even today, even right now, Lord God, I know that in a room this size, there are going to be a number of people right now under what seems like an unbearable weight of doubt. Father, I pray that in the midst of that very real experience of of not seeing you, God, that today, as we worship, God, that, that we would each, each one of us, even those today, in doubt, doubt because of trials, doubt because of loss of loved ones, doubt because of uncertainty of the future, God, that today we would see so clearly the gospel. That today, God, we would see that you poured out your love on us through Christ. That in the midst of our doubt, we can pray those doubts to you and we can see your love poured out. We can see your hand holding us. We can see your spirit guiding us. We can see that our eternity is secure. Father, I pray for those who are battling with that today, God, that today would be a day where that doubt would drive them to a deeper faith. Father, for those who are here this morning who, who see themselves more in the other category of, well, I've never doubted because I've never believed. And God, that, that, that they would see that the dream is about to end, but it doesn't have to end. That eternity can be theirs. God, that this morning that God, that they can make a move towards you to say, I need you. And be changed today. Father, thank you that while we were beasts, while we were sinners, while we were your enemies, that Lord Jesus, you died for us to set us free. I pray for that freedom of the gospel to be be experienced in a new way even today. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.